Hello, this is Alan Watt at CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com. Today is the 9th of November, 2006. The big election fracas is over in the U.S., and all that's come out of it is people have voted for change, and by God, they're going to get it. Do you want to know a secret? Do you promise not to tell? Whoa, whoa closer. Let me whisper in your ear. Yesterday I mentioned I would probably go through some of the foundings and the machinations of the Council on Foreign Relations the American branch of the Royal Institute of International Affairs, which was set up to bring in a form of world government, a world governmental system to standardize every nation into the one system, and basically to rule the people in a bureaucratic, socialist, almost communistic fashion with multi-layered levels of bureaucracy while a small dominant elite who believe they are the fittest to rule and that the most intelligent will make all the decisions at the, at the capstone, basically. The people who want to really get into this should go into Tragedy and Hope by the historian of the Council on Foreign Relations who lays it on the line and fills in all the little spots in history between the dates and the battles that you get in school. He fills in the reasons for them happening. He tells you and names the families involved, the pool of strings in all countries, all the British Commonwealth countries and the United States. Now it's even gone further because they're allowing in uh, non-English speaking peoples. They have headquarters in, in Pakistan and every other country. They own the newspapers in every country. That was one of their first mandates, was to take over all information avenues. They also own all of the, the, the media. They're involved in the fictional Hollywood-type programming that we get. They also were the ones to promote professorships into universities so that they can have their men teaching the students especially the Ivy League universities, who then eventually become the, the higher bureaucrats in the federal government. So we are living in a tremendous cobweb, all interrelated across the planet, all the, all the little strands connecting together into a, a global network. They also controlled all the banking systems. That's another major important part of all of this. Professor Carol Quigley had access to the records of the Council on Foreign Relations in New York City. And he was told to update them, go over them, as the historian, the authorized historian for the group. And he wrote Tragedy and Hope, a book that was eventually bought over pretty quickly, and the plates were smashed, but now it's back in publication. You can find it if you... Uh, if you go on the internet.
internet when he's talking about the the, the build up of the tensions which had been manipulated by the one group both in the Soviet system since they were behind it and backed it financially and the West to create a form of dialectical change in peoples of both sides so that they come to the eventual synthesis we're at today where East and West become joined into this new system. He goes through this and he talks about the build-up initially pre-World War II and then the, the, the trials on the communist factions in the United States um, during the McCarthy era. And this is from his own book. I, I generally don't read from books. I prefer that the people who are interested go and get the books themselves and read them if they're really, really interested. But you see, this is not a conspiracy per se. It's an open type of conspiracy, as H.G. Wells called it himself. And he should know since he was a, a propagandist for the group. This is taken right from page... Uh, 949 of Tragedy and Hope talking about the United States the radical right version of these events as written up by John T. Flynn Frida Utley and others was even more remote from the truth than were the Budenses or Bentley's versions although it had a tremendous impact on American opinion and American relations with other countries in the years 1947 to 1955. This radical right fairy tale, which is now an accepted folk myth in many groups in America, pictured the recent history of the United States in regard to domestic reform and in foreign affairs as a well-organized plot by extreme left-wing elements operating from the White House itself and controlling all the chief avenues of publicity in the United States to destroy the American way of life based on enterprise, laissez-faire and isolationism in behalf of alien ideologies of Russian socialism and British cosmopolitanism or internationalism. This plot, if we are to believe the myth, worked through such avenues of publicity as the New York Times and the Herald Tribune, the Christian Science Monitor and the Washington Post, the Atlantic Monthly and Harper's Magazine, and had at its core the wild-eyed and bushy-haired theoreticians of Socialist Harvard and the London School of Economics. It was determined to bring the United States into World War II on the side of England, Roosevelt's first love, and Soviet Russia, his second, in order to destroy every finer element of American life, and as part of this consciously planned scheme invited Japan to attack Pearl Harbor and destroyed Chiang Kai-shek, all the while undermining America's real strength by excessive spending and unbalanced budgets. So he calls this fairy tale. But then he continues on page 950. This myth, like all fables, does in fact have a modicum of truth. Listen to this. There does exist and has existed for a generation an international anglophile network which operates to some extent in the way the radical right believes the communists act. In fact, this network, which we may identify as the round table groups, has no aversion to cooperating with the communists.
communists or any other groups, and frequently does so. I know of the operations of this network because I have studied it for 20 years and was permitted for two years in the early 1960s to examine its papers and secret records. I have no aversion to it or to most of its aims and have, for much of my life, been close to it and too many of its instruments. I have objected both in the past and recently to a few of the policies, notably to its belief that England was an Atlantic rather than a European power and must be allied or even federated with the United States and must remain isolated from Europe. But in general, my chief difference of opinion is that it wishes to remain unknown and I believe its role in history is significant enough to be known. That's an understatement. Uh, these boys, this interlocking network that was set up in the late 1800s in England by Lord Rothschild, who, who financially backed it, and Cecil Rhodes, the man, uh, Cecil Rhodes left his will to Lord Rothschild. And it was to be based along Jesuit lines of operation. Now, the Jesuit lines of operation they're talking about is to totally obscure their tracks by having people fight each other and group fight group, never knowing that there was one group behind all of it, agitating it all, funding it all, and keeping the agitations going and flowing and directed towards a specific objective, a specific outcome. Uh, Carol Quigley, who was the man who picked, or was told to pick, Bill Clinton for the Rhodes Scholarship, was a member of this group. He was a member of the Intelligentsia, as he saw himself. And even publishing this book could have been his downfall because he'd broken out and, and thought the public were ready to accept the fact that... Uh, an intelligentsia was dominating them secretly and he believed the public would probably accept it. Well, today he didn't know he'd have no problem because we are totally dominated and the public can't even see the trails in the sky above their head uh, making the global warming. But they do believe the propaganda on television that there is global warming caused by us, of course. So if he tried that today, he would have no problem. They would just have yawned and turned the station to wrestling or something. He goes on to say in page 950, it says, At the risk of some repetition, the story, story will be summarized here because the American branch of this organization, sometimes called the Eastern Establishment, has played a very significant role in the history of the United States in the last generation. The roundtable groups were semi-secret discussion and lobbying groups organized by Lionel Curtis, Philip H. Kerr, who is Lord Lothian, and Sir William S. Maris in 1908 to 1911. This was done on behalf of Lord Milner, the dominant trustee of the Rhodes Trust in the two decades, 1905-1925. The original purpose of these groups was to seek to federate the English-speaking world along lines laid down by Cecil Rhodes, and William T. Stead, and the money for the organizational work came originally from the Rhodes Trust. Yeah, it lists every member and every generation since that. 
Now, apart from setting up the Council on Foreign Relations for the United States, rather than call it the, it wouldn't, it wouldn't go too well if they called it the Royal Institute of the United States. So they called it the Council on Foreign Relations. They also set up the IPS for the Pacific Rim regions. And this was to get a form of communist uprising in the Far East, because the fastest way to bring many different peoples and tribes together is to give them an ideal to fight for and a common enemy. And that's what Vietnam was all about. The aliens came in, all of the scattered tribes united. There was only one organized and well-funded party. That was the Communist Party. You centralized government. The Americans move out. And the centralized government basically takes on the same forms as what's called democratic governments. It's the same standardizational process. This was all made to happen, planned, and worked tirelessly by dedicated intergenerational families trained in the Ivy League schools of the United States and England. And they, they sent them out from Canada too, and Australia and New Zealand, big players all. And these guys have been behind the creation of the Soviet system, the, the system of in China, uh, Vietnam, and everywhere else. To unify the world is the objective. Now, the Jesuits were blamed for the same thing, for trying to unify their old world order through subterfuge, causing events to happen where the, the obvious people in front, the groups would be identified and hated and would fight each other, but they'd never know that the Jesuits were behind it. It's the same technique used here with the members of these groups who are well-trained and they're picked at university and trained for their positions. We can go as far back even to Lawrence of Arabia, who in his own book, The Seven Pillars of Wisdom, talks about his selection at Cambridge University and his immersion in Aramaic and Arab studies for his significant role that was planned years ahead. They plan the world always way ahead, like a big business plan, and they watch everything come to pass. They give us our thoughts, they give us our opinions, the talking heads on television that come on, all the experts on pretty well every topic that's meant to bend our mind into a particular mode of accepting another loss of rights or whatever are supplied by them. The merging of Europe was their plan and idea. They were behind it all. And the, emergence, uh, the, the emerging unification of the Americas was also their idea. The third one, of course, was the Pacific Rim region. Karl Marx was funded by the same crowd. Just before Cecil Rhodes came along, they were going then. And Karl Marx wrote about the unification of these three continents, you might say. On page 951, he talks about the funding that was set up. Money for the widely ramified activities of this organization came originally from the associates and followers of Cecil Rhodes, chiefly, chiefly from the Rhodes Trust itself, and from wealthy associates such as the Bate brothers from 
Abe Bailey and Astor 1915 from the Astor family. Since 1925, there have been substantial contributions from wealthy individuals and from foundations and firms associated with the international banking fraternity, especially the Carnegie United Kingdom Trust and other organizations associated with J.P. Morgan, the Rockefeller and Whitney families, and the associates of Lazard Brothers and of Morgan, Grenfell and Company. The chief backbone of this organization grew up along the already existing financial corporation running from the Morgan Bank in New York to a group of international financiers in London led by Lazard Brothers. Milner himself in 1901 had refused a fabulous offer worth up to $100,000 a year to become one of the three partners of the Morgan Bank in London in succession to the younger J.P. Morgan who moved from London to join his father in New York, eventually the vacancy went to E.C. Grenfell so that the London affiliate of Morgan became known as Morgan, Grenfell & Company. Instead, Milner became director of a number of public banks, chiefly the London Joint Stock Bank, corporate precursor of the Midland Bank. He became one of the greatest political and financial powers in England, with his disciples strategically placed throughout England in significant places such as the editorship of the Times, the editorship of the Observer, the managing directorship of Lazard Brothers, various administrative posts, and even cabinet positions. That's parliament positions. Ramifications were established in politics, high finance, Oxford and London universities, periodicals, the civil service, and tax-exempt foundations. Jumping back, we can see the trail of this group long before Cecil Rhodes to one of its members who takes the, the credit for starting it up, which is nonsense. He was only one man that popped his head up in time and history and acted in one main country. That was Adam Weishaupt. Now, Adam Weishaupt, who's well known for the Illuminati and, and the buffs love the word Illuminati, ooh, but really... Uh, he was a member of the same group, pre-existing Cecil Rhodes. These guys don't start and stop. It's a continuous line done through history. And Weishaupt said that they would create foundations, great foundations of wealth, which would be untouchable by the public because they would appear as charitable foundations. But the, the amount of wealth they would accumulate would be phenomenal and with it, they would, they would basically fund the front groups, the NGOs, we call them today, non-governmental organizations, who, who would then press for public demands on parliaments and presidents and congresses. And that's how they would change the laws, to have a standardization process across the planet we find that the, the banking establishment and those who become CEOs of banks, who, who just move from bank to bank and into politics, out of politics, are big players in this. Quigley says in his book on page 952, the New York branch was dominated by the associates of the Morgan Bank. For example, in 1928, the Council on Foreign Relations had John W. Davis as president. 
Paul Cravath as Vice President and Council of 13 others, which included Owen D. Young, Russell C. Lethingwell, Norman Davis, Alan Dulles, George W. Wickersham, Frank I. Polk, Whitney Shepherdson, Isaiah Bowman, Stephen P. Dugan, and Otto Kahn. Throughout its history, the Council has been associated with American roundtables such as Beer, Lippmann, Shepherdson, and Jeremy Green. The academic figures have been those linked to Morgan, such as James T. Shotwell, Charles Seymour, Joseph P. Chamberlain, Philip Jessup, Isaiah Bowman, and more recently, Philip Mosley, Grayson L. Kirk, and Henry M. Ritson. The Wall Street contacts with these were created originally from Morgan's influence in handling large academic endowments, that's university endowments. In the case of the largest of these endowments that had Harvard, the influence was usually exercised indirectly through uh, State Street, Boston, which for much of the 20th century came through the Boston banker Thomas Nelson Perkins. Closely allied with this Morgan influence were a small group of Wall Street law firms whose chief figures were Elihu Root, John W. Davis, Paul D. Cravath, Russell Leffingwell and Dulles Brothers, and more recently Arthur H. Dean, Philip D. Reed, and John J. McCloy. Other non-legal agents of Morgan included men like Owen D. Young and Norman H. Davis. On this basis, which was originally financial and goes back to George Peabody, there grew up in the 20th century a power structure between London and New York, which penetrated deeply into university life, the press, and the practice of foreign policy. In England, the centre was a roundtable group, while in the United States it was J.P. Morgan and Company or its local branches in Boston, Philadelphia, and Cleveland. Some rather incidental examples of the operations of this structure are very revealing just because they are incidental. For example, it set up Princeton as a reasonable copy of the Roundtable Group's chief Oxford headquarters, All Souls College. This copy, called the Institute for Advanced Study, and best known perhaps as the refuge of Einstein, Oppenheimer, John von Neumann, and George F. Keenan, was organized by Abraham Flexner of the Carnegie Foundation and Rockefeller's General Educational Board after he had experienced the delights of all souls while serving as Rhodes Memorial Lecturer at Oxford. The plans were largely drawn by Tom Jones, one of the round table's most active intriguers and foundation administrators. The American branch of this English establishment exerted much of its influence through five American newspapers, the New York Times, New York Herald Tribune, Christian Science Monitor, the Washington Post, and the lamented Boston Evening Transcript. In fact, the editor of the Christian Science Monitor was the chief American correspondent of the Round Table. And Lord Lothian, the original editor of the Round Table and later a secretary of the Rhodes Trust, an ambassador to Washington, was a frequent writer in the Monitor. It might be mentioned that the existence of this Wall Street Anglo-American axis is quite obvious once it is pointed out. It is reflected in the fact that such Wall Street luminaries such as John W. Davis, Lewis Douglas, Jock Whitney, 
and Douglas Dillon were appointed to be American ambassadors in London. So there's your, your financial groups tied together, this networking of fin finance which funds, which is quite easy to do if you own all the money, you fund what you want into existence. You promote and pay off people to open doors for the ones you want to get through to the top with your agenda. And this group is still pushing ahead as strongly as ever today, intergenerational. And the Canadian Television 2005, the Council on Foreign Relations officially for the first time as a group came on the national television at news time, CBC, and said that they were behind the plans for the unification of the Americas. And they drafted up the plans for the politicians. Money, high power positions, media, politics, it's all owned by them. For world government. Up until about this point, Quigley is talking about primarily the English-American connection, and later on in the book he goes into the Pacific region connection that would eventually unite the Pacific countries and, and put Australia in with them. On page 953, he goes into how it branched out in the early days to include Europe as well. He says this, this double international network in which the round table groups formed a semi-secret or secret nuclei of the Institutes of International Affairs was extended into a third network in 1925, organized by the same couple for the same motives. Once again, the mastermind was Lionel Curtis, and the earlier round table groups and Institutes of International Affairs were used as nuclei for the new networks. However, this new organization for Pacific Affairs was extended to ten countries, while the roundtable groups existed in only seven. The new additions ultimately, China, Japan, France, the Netherlands, and Soviet Russia, had Pacific Councils set up from scratch. In Canada, Australia, and New Zealand, Pacific Councils interlocked and dominated by the Institutes of International Affairs were set up. In England, Chatham House served as the English centre for both nets, while in the United States the two were parallel creations, not subordinate of the Wall Street allies of the Morgan Bank. Their financing came from the same international banking groups and their subsidiary commercial and industrial firms. In England, Chatham House was financed for both networks by the contributions of Sir Abe Bailey, the Astor family. You've heard of uh, Anne Bailey, those who are into theosophy. The Astor family and additional funds largely acquired by the persuasive powers of Lionel Curtis. The financial difficulties of the IPR councils in the British dominions in the depression of 29 to 35 resulted in a very revealing effort to save money when the local Institute of International Affairs absorbed the local Pacific Council both of which were, in any way, expensive and leadless fronts for the local roundtable groups. The chief aims of this elaborate semi-secret organization were largely commendable. This is a man who was all for it. 
an elitist himself, to coordinate the international activities and outlooks of all the English-speaking world into one, which would largely, it is true, be that of the London group, to work to maintain the peace, to help backward colonial and underdeveloped areas to advance towards a stable of stability, law and order, and prosperity along lines somewhat similar to those taught at Oxford and the University of London, especially the School of Economics and Schools of African and Oriental Studies. So we're looking at a tremendously powerful, powerful group who push democracy as though it were uh, something that the people had uh, uh, created themselves while they themselves are anything but democratic, they do everything in the dark and secret. They don't believe in democracy themselves, but they want us to believe in it. They, we must believe the myth, you see, to allow them to accomplish their goals. There's no slave like a, a slave that thinks he's free. And these are all very wealthy people, very wealthy bankers and noble families deciding all of this for us. They believe that they are the top of the Darwinian heap, while we're just the junk DNA. They've been behind all of the wars, all of the ongoing wars too, because they must standardize the whole world under their one system. And all of this stuff with global warming, as the other big fear racket, they're financing and funding all of that to make us change our way of living, to get us into habitat areas where we'll live like uh, fleas in a thimble, all jumping over each other, while they will have reforested the wilds for themselves, for their own offspring to helicopter into for the weekend parties. This is the brave new world, uh, a controlled society, a totally controlled society. And eventually you won't be able to even leave the area you're assigned to. That's already on the way, in fact, with the bills that are on the table in most countries to do with ID cards and radius of travel within the same as the Soviet system, because the Soviet system was the test bed for all that is happening today. The Soviet was not an independent, rebellious unit. It was a creation of people in London, England, who already owned what we call the capitalist system. During World War II, Chatham House, their headquarters in England, was turned into the official secret service office for the country which tells you it's not just a, an independent powerful organization it's got the blessings it works for the top of the crown of London for those who wonder about the impact of this group in the major events worldwide in the last hundred years, they should read Tragedy and Hope themselves. You'll find every major politician in every country, including the top bureaucrats, professors, and newspaper editors, are members of 
either a branch of the Royal Institute of International Affairs for Commonwealth Countries or a member of the Council on Foreign Relations for Non-Commonwealth Countries. There's hardly an exception. And you'll find, too, another branch of it is the Trilateral Commission, which is dedicated to the three main trading blocks of the world which will come into being around, officially that is, around 2010-2012 under a single world government. foundations 
and the necessity to use every means possible, including manipulation of the stock market to rise to success and acquire the wealth to become the masters over the masters of the world. And it's so funny, on the media, people look to the media, even though they could read this for themselves and study it and trace all, even the people they see today on the media, their favorite talking heads, and find out they're members of these organizations. They can do that, and yet they're so trained, they'll still listen to new information and then go back to the media to see if the media will verify it for them. Isn't that odd? Because they're trained that if it must be, if it's on TV, it must be true. If it's not on television, it can't be worth knowing. And that's how well they've been indoctrinated. They have accepted that the media is there to do their thinking and reasoning for them. As though it's an official part of government. It's, it's natural like gravity. It's just there. They've forgotten that the media is, is in private hands. Private hands. Now, Parents and grandparents can probably remember the machinations of the big editors and their, their ties to, to the bigger banking business and the fact that big editors tend to go over to get knighted by the crown in England. So many of the U.S. big shakers and movers towards this global agenda have been over to be knighted by the queen. Why? Why is that so important? Especially when it's against the U.S. Constitution that American citizens get knighted by foreign monarchies. And yet they'll go over and do it to big players. It's amazing to watch this happen. And they can't put two and two together because the media won't come out and tell them this. They want to explain to them in simple, childlike fashion how the world is really run. Their job is to keep you living in the same land as the Wizard of Oz, in a state of perpetual infantilism, where there's a big brother or big daddy taking care of everything for you and making all your decisions for you and telling you when you should be worried about what you should be worried. Oh my goodness, it's global warming now. We'll have to change all our way of living. You'll all have to move into these little habitat areas and live on top of each other. And you'll have to have your lives organized for you because, well, you just can't do it yourself. You're too stupid. That really is what you're being told. And it's true that people have become so lobotomized, and I mean that in its fullest sense. I think they have been lobotomized. I think we've all suffered the effects from the inoculations. Again, beginning, all these inoculations began as philanthropic enterprises. That should be suspicious to begin with. And the fact that they have also published books by big players on ways to lobotomize the public to make them more 
pliable and compliant. The effects of autism have skyrocketed and the only graph that matches it is the inoculation programs that go alongside of it. They're both the same graphs. But because the media won't come out and tell you what is obvious, we dismiss it. Look at the blank blanket over discussion of the aerial spraying we've been bombarded with since the 90s to the present time and the effects it's having on people with bronchitis and who knows what else. Look at the writings of Brzezinski, another big player and look at the organizations he belonged to. I've just been talking about them. And Brzezinski said in his own book that shortly a technology would be used on the general public which would influence their behavior. And he was talking about in the technotronic era, as it was called, where they could literally use harp-type technology to manipulate the emotions and the thoughts of everyone. You see the effects all around you. It's being used. You'll find that people like Brzezinski don't say these things without meaning it. They mean what they say. And they do it. It's the public who make excuses and say, well, they, they, can't, they can't mean that can't really mean that. Just like when the Department of Population Control at the United Nations gives out the statistics and, and, and rattles the bells, of course, the warning bells. Oh, my God, it's just overflowing with people and they're popping out all over every second of the day. They've got to do something. Well, they are doing things about it. They just don't want to terrify you uh, that much in case you overreact and, and go at them when you find out they're behind it. They are depopulating the planet. For Africa, it was decided it would be the faster kill. For Europe and the West, it would be the slow, degenerative-type diseases, which would make partners ineligible for marriage or for childbearing. Hence, we have chronic fatigue, fibromyalgia. We have all the, the Epstein-Barr's virus. There's a whole bunch of things out there. The terms for all really the same thing. They just came out of nowhere at the same time. And then we run for all the quack cures that's offered to us. Because sickness is a very real thing and unfortunately there are lots of people who will take advantage of every misfortune an individual has. There's a lot of profit to be made of misery. It is of note that this organization also branches out into the sciences, all scientific areas, and opens the doors for their own favored people to get to the top of these organizations, scientific organizations. 
they set the trend in psychology, they set the trend in psychiatry, they set the trend in medicine, they set the trend in every area of science. Very powerful. Everything that, that means anything and control in the society goes back to the same group. And they train members, they bring in members in their own scholarships. As one of the, 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 the scholarships, they own many in this day and age. But they, they bring them in from all countries. All countries in Europe have Rhodes Scholars working in their governments. All who have taken oath to world citizenship. And you'll hear Rockefeller often give out awards at the little semi-private meetings for world citizenship. Uh, Pierre Trudeau of Canada called himself a world citizen. Back to Weishaupt. Weishaupt was the first one who put that term into writing that he would create a world citizenship society. The reason being, as I say, it's all the one organization down through time with many names and some say and it's very true it could be very true you know, at least going all the way back to Babylon where it was very difficult to simply define what Babylon was it was an entire structural system and it was merchandising it was money banking uh, international commerce taxation government, uh, all of the things that we know today, it was an entire structural system. And education, of course, is always in there as a biggie because you must control the minds of the young and shape their outcomes for them. They say that Isis was a god, a goddess of a thousand faces a thousand names, a thousand faces and it's no different today all pervasive run on a Jesuit type fashion and always tries to have front groups which take the heat and divert and distort the cause they hide the cause and distort it while the real boys continue unimpeded and never, ever are responsible to the public. Now, Carol Quigley also wrote The Anglo-American Establishment, a fantastic history, going into some even greater detail in parts of this the embryo idea of the unification of countries, the unification of Europe, uh, the, the Anglo-European or, or British um, Atlantic Charter, which cemented the United States policies with that of England, and the, the, the Far Eastern policies and Middle Eastern policies for the future, which we're living through right now. and And... This book also was written around the 60s, and he was into the early history of it. Now, before the United Nations, 
they'd set up, the same group had set up the League of Nations. They were behind it. And this is from page 282 of the Anglo-American Establishment. From this point onward, the Milner Group increasingly emphasized the necessity for building up the Oceanic Bloc. That's the, he's talking really about the Atlantic Charter. That was the foundation of the basis for the Charter of the United Nations. In England, the basic propaganda work was done through the Roundtable and Lionel Curtis, while in the U.S., it was done through the Rhodes Scholarship Organization, especially through Clarence Strait and Frank Adelet. Adelot, it is. In England, Curtis wrote a series of books and articles advocating a new federal organization built around the English-speaking countries. The chief work of this nature was his Civitas Dea, which appeared in three volumes, 1934 to 37. A one-volume edition was issued in 38 with the title The Commonwealth of God. The first two volumes of this work are nothing more than a rehash and expansion of the older work, The Commonwealth of Nations, 1916. By a superficial and frequently erroneous rewriting of world history. Now that's very important because H.G. Wells was doing the same thing with other authors um, at the same period, at the same time. By a superficial and frequently erroneous rewriting of world history, the author sought to review the evolution of the Commonwealth idea and to show that all of history leads to its fulfillment and achievement in federation. Ultimately, this federation will be worldwide, but en route it must pass through stages of which the chief is federation of the English-speaking peoples. Writing early in 1937, he advocated that the League of Nations be destroyed by the mass resignation of the British democracies. These should then take the initiative in forming a new League, that's the United Nations, also at Geneva, which would have no power to enforce anything but would merely form a kind of international conference, since it would be foolish to expect any federation to evolve from such, any such organization as this, a parallel but quite separate effort should be made to create an international commonwealth based on the example of the United States in 1788. Now, <clears throat> if we jump back in time, we can remember that Thomas Jefferson's writings, his own writings, not, not about him, but by him, in his letters, he said that, that the, United, the United States of America, he hoped, would be a basis for not just a federation of the United States, but a, a United States of the world. It's all connected. This international commonwealth would differ from the League of Nations in that its members would yield up part of their sovereignty and the central organization would function directly on individuals and not merely on states. In other words, it would have the power to go right to the individual for atomic taxation and law, etc. This international commonwealth would be formed at first only of those states that have evolved furthest in the direction of obtaining a commonwealth form of government for themselves, democracy. It will be recalled that this restriction on membership was what Curtis had advocated for the League of Nations in the Round Table of December 1918. According to Curtis, the movement towards the Commonwealth of God can begin by the union of any two national commonwealths, no matter how small. 
he suggested New Zealand and Australia, or these two in Great Britain. Then the international commonwealth could be expanded to include India, Egypt, Holland, Belgium. Belgium was very important because they knew then that that's where they would set up their European Parliament. Scandinavia, France, Canada, United States, and Ireland. That the chief obstacle to this union was to be found in men's minds was perfectly clear to Curtis. To overcome this obstacle, he put his faith in propaganda, and the chief instruments of that propaganda, he said, must be the churches and the universities. Very important part. Very important, because you train the minds of the young, the movers and shakers at the universities, the ones who go into bureaucracies and, and government. He said nothing about the Milner group, but considering Curtis's position at the group, and that Lothian, as Lord Lothian and others agreed with him, it is not surprising that the chief source of this propaganda is to be found in those agencies controlled by the group. Well, <clears throat> this group controls almost all the big agencies worldwide and all the foundations worldwide that have the enormous sums of wealth at their disposal to, to push NGOs, to push policies, to have the NGOs come up and demand from government certain things be done on behalf of the public, and that was the Soviet system. And as I say, the Soviet system was nothing more than the big test bed, the laboratory for the whole planet, and the Soviet system was designed in London, England, a long time ago. Money runs everything in this world. Every president, every prime minister on the planet knows his country can be sunk at any time by those who hold the debt and those who give credit. And yet we think we're free and we think we're democratic. We never even meet or most people don't even know the names of those in the world bank, the world bankers. Most people don't even know what money is. They don't think past the fact they can spend it. But we're living in a totally controlled, scientifically designed, propagandized system where fashion, as Plato said, music, drama, and all propaganda of politics is designed by a few at the top and promoted downwards to the people. That's called culture creation. So I hope those who want to do their own research will get these two books. I'm not promoting anybody selling them. You can do your own search to find them. And I could go into even greater detail because I have copies, members' copies of their meetings throughout different years where they discuss the future of the planet. Some of these books going back to the 1930s. Discussing the coming war with Germany, discussing a possible attack by Japan on the United States. 
and how fortunate it would be to get the United States into a war and a post-war world and also the saving of the Soviet system. Why would, was it so important? Because they were behind the creation and the funding and the setting up of the Soviet system. The fastest way to amalgamate many different peoples, get them off the land into the cities, the urban populations, they created industrialize them and put in the one standardized system, a centralized government. Nothing major happens in history outside of nature, and even nature's control today. But nothing happens without being planned that way. Meanwhile, the paid press stirs everyone up and gives them the fever of election time, their own terminology. Easy to do, they've conditioned the public to suddenly go bananas when they see the clowns and the banners and the balloons, ah, like a circus. And the public think that, uh, there's hope there, there's hope, because someone surely will do the right thing one day. Uh, their life experience tells them it never happens in politics, but that doesn't stop them from getting the fever and trying again. We are on a course of the uttermost tyranny in a system, a scientifically designed system, which will eventually obliterate anyone's ability to even think of themselves as a distinct, separate individual. And those who still have a functioning brain and who haven't been too loaded down with inoculations from birth will find they're in the generation, the only last generation with a chance of doing anything about this. And we have to speak out now. And you have to arm yourself with the, with the ammunition of books such as the ones I have just mentioned and demand the answers. But most importantly, you must demand to know the organizations and affiliations and the oaths taken by everyone who has any jurisdiction over your life, from the school board to your local police officer, to the judges, to the law courts, to the governments. It's only then you will see this fraternity this network across the planet is all pervasive and it's then you must demand to get them out and don't give your power away to others to rule over you until you've thoroughly, thoroughly vetted them. Someone who wants the power to rule over you cannot keep anything secret from the public. That's all for tonight. Good night, and may your God go with you.
my 